everyone. This is Dr. Amanda Allard, and I am the founder and CEO of Allard Advising and Wedded Words Wedding Speech Consulting. I help you communicate more effectively in every setting you can imagine. You are listening to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast with John Hewlin. Life is all about relationships, and great leaders heavily invest in those relationships. On the Relationships and Revenue Podcast, we talk about how to improve our most significant relationships at home so we can be better in our business relationships. We talk with experts from all over the world, representing many disciplines, about the best tips and strategies to become amazing people and amazing leaders. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is your host, John Hewlin, as always, thrilled to have each and every one of you with me today. And as you heard from that lovely introduction, I have the one and only Dr. Amanda Allard. Dr. Amanda, how are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How good is it to start enjoying the DR period in front of your name? It is uh, really really nice. I worked really hard for that DR in front of my name. It was a little surreal and in some ways anticlimactic. But the day before I, you know, defended my dissertation, I didn't feel any different than after I defended my dissertation. And so I'm getting used to definitely having doctor in front of my name and people calling me doctor. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, the the funny thing is I've been around several academics over my career. Uh, over various disciplines. And what I have found is the further on that they go, the further they get out of the academic side and get into what I call the real world side of things, they tend to not think so much about, oh, I am Dr. So-and-so. They just think of them as whoever they are. Exactly. If that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely is a tool. I I obviously want to support that tool and I can use it and to, to my benefit, there is some weight that comes with it. So when I'm introducing sure. myself, obviously, it shows that I'm intelligent and speaks to my credibility on speaking about topics such as communication and relationships. Uh, but like you said, when I'm, you know, going to the pub or you know, going and having dinner, I never introduce myself as Dr. Amanda Allard. But like you said, I thanks who they that are so entrenched in the academic world that they have it everywhere. They have it on their you know, oh, yeah. cards. They have it everywhere. And I'm I'm definitely not that way. Uh, I don't foresee myself becoming that way. But yeah, I can definitely understand. <laughs> yeah. You know, the interesting thing, and most people don't think about this, all attorneys are actually doctors. Yeah, they have their JD. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's a juris doctorate. Yeah. Like, nobody thinks of it that way. But there's a power difference, right? And sometimes... Yeah. And I've I've noticed this when I introduce myself to other women or sometimes other men, they tense up, they clam up. And mm. like I said, we could be at, we could just ha- be having a drink or we could be at a holiday event. And I say that I'm Dr. Amanda Allard and the mood completely switches and mm-hmm. never want to make someone feel uncomfortable or whatever <laughs> it may be. And then in the other turn of that coin is I could say I'm Dr. Amanda Allard and people want to start disclosing to me everything about their relationships and everything right. about their work life and wanting to pick my brain. And so I have to mm-hmm. definitely be mindful of when I say doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's funny that you mentioned that uh, because 
One thing that a lot of people who know me from this podcast don't know about my background mm -hmm. is that I have a master's degree in divinity. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. And so that's something that I, that's not the first thing I tell people about me because the same kind of thing happens to me because when that comes up in a conversation, I'm immediately placed inside of whatever this preconceived notion is of someone who's like that. And I won't say it's impossible to get out of it, but it's a deep hole and oh. it, it can be very difficult to get out. Exactly. I can't tell you how many people have like assumed my political affiliation based off of having doctor in front of my name. Or, really? Yeah. So I've had many people That's assume that I'm uh, a part of the Democratic Party, which I, I have never disclosed what party I'm a part of and never will. That's probably wise. But, yeah. It's, yeah. And but it was just very interesting that people automatically assumed. Um, so when I was mm -hmm. single before I met my fiance, I was going on dates and I wouldn't I would have on there that I was a Ph.D. student. And some people wouldn't go on dates with me because they would automatically assume that I was either Republican because I'm from Texas or Democratic because I'm a part of academia or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. And mm -hmm. so it def yeah, it, people definitely have this stereotype about you when you say that you are educated. And yeah. I think that there are some things that are there's correlated, right? Like they make sense. Like, yeah, you know that if you have a master's or a Ph.D., that you probably can read a book really fast or you can think quickly or you can have deep <laughs> conversations about minuscule concepts and topics. But I think some other stereotypes are kind of blown out of proportion. For sure. You know, that's interesting. This is not at all the direction I planned on going in the beginning of the conversation, but we're going this way anyway. And there's, I'll, I'll get there is the point I'm trying to make. One of the things that I was warned about before I pursued my master's degree was because, and I'm sure you experienced this both on the master's level as well as the doctoral level, you spend so much time in a classroom and it's so ivory tower thinking that it can, your vocabulary changes because you're so used to using a certain vocabulary. Well, you end up using it in everyday life. Well, everyday people you're around don't understand it. Exactly. And so you learn a lot, but it's almost as if I had to like relearn how to be myself after I finished mm. because of that, because of the so focused on a certain um, set of vocabulary words that, okay, just for anybody who cares, and most people are not going to care what I'm about to say, uh, Latin American liberation theology. I bet no one, first of all, even listening knows what I'm talking about, let alone cares what that means. But what people do care about is if I'm at the grocery store, they may approach me. And it's like they want to know, why is your life better than mine? Mm. Now, that's something people can grab a hold of. They can understand that. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. And it took me a while to be like, OK, I can take these high lofty ideals and I can bring it, bring them down. It sounds like I'm making myself out to be some great person. I'm not. It's no. just. It's some concepts can be hard for people to understand. And it's using it in everyday language. Uh, okay, that is communication. Mm -hmm. It's it's taking these things that I learned and making them accessible to everyone. And to and me, that's what communication is. It, yes, and the difference between getting a doctorate in communication versus theology or sciences, right? We mm -hmm. actually 
a PhD in communication really didn't come about until the 50s. So mm. one of the first communication programs that was ever started came about after World War II because we were trying to study why was Adolf Hitler's messages so persuasive, right? So that was mm. the first area of communication of like was uh, rhetoric and persuasive communication, which is different from psychology. Psychology, uh. psychology and communication can, can get very much overlapped. We do look at very similar concepts and ideas, such as friendships and relationships. I personally think that the biggest difference is psychologists are really interested in these, the big picture kind of view when it comes to relationships and therapy. And then they go deep into the application of how can I apply this knowledge to helping you mend your depression or this family turmoil. Whereas mm -hmm. with communication, I'm specifically interested in the messages. So how... So when people think that I'm going in and talking about marriage and family and teaching about it, I'm also looking at how, like, what messages work the best in our relationships. So anyways, back to the history of communication, it's very new. It's very fresh. I mean, it's not even 100 years old. And so we're very much just scraping the surface of what is communication? How can it be applied in the workforce? What skills do you get from it? But Yes, that is essentially the breakdown of where communication happens. And I think people oftentimes, this is where we get confused. A lot of times, everyday individuals, and this is how I thought before I went to get my education. And for anyone who's listening, I'm a first-gen PhD student and master's student. So all of this was also very new to me. But I went about the world thinking, this conversation between me and you today, John, I thought it was just person A and person B. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that go into me creating the message and you decoding my message, right? Nope. So what's influencing me, my encoding of the message or creation of the message? My personal life, what I was doing 10 minutes ago, where I'm at currently, my context, similar to you, your ability to understand my message. What is our relationship, right? Um, some of the viewers may not know that we've met before prior to this that we had coffee a few months ago uh, uh, over Zoom. Uh, there's cultural differences between you and I, how we pronounce our last names, how we, where we come from. And so all of those things are playing into it. And then you add a layer on top of it, which is noise. So for example, in this conversation, in this podcast, if there was a phone call coming in, that would be noise. And that would influence and affect your ability to comprehend my message and fully retain it. Then also too, there's the channel. Are we doing this podcast via email, voice recordings, going back and forth? No, we're doing it right now over a microphone. So I, when I think of communication, when I think of two people interacting on a date in their home between husband and wife in the corporate world, I'm looking at it through the lens of taking all of those things into consideration, where I think, like you said, if you haven't had my background in education, you might think it's just person A and person B, but there's so much more to it. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, let's dig into that a little more right now. Since, we, since we've kind of defined what communication is, mm -hmm. tell us about some of those influences before we ever actually, in whatever form the communication takes. Right now, I'm thinking specifically of like a face-to-face -face conversation but it doesn't specifically have to be that. But let's talk about what goes into influencing someone before he or she ever speaks. 
So I'll start with the encoder. So this is the person that's creating the message. Okay. Let's say uh, you are going to Starbucks and you are about to order your favorite coffee. Mine's an Americano. So you're, I'm going up to go order this. If I had a really good morning, right? So my background, I'm probably going to, and I, it's been really relaxed and I've been really productive. I'm probably going to, my vocalics are going to change and I'm going to be like, hi, Susie. You know, I'd really like an Americano versus if I have a very stressful day ahead of me or where my moods and emotions are at, that can influence my tone. So it's not just vocalics or the message. It's also your vocalics. It's your nonverbals, how your shoulders are positioned, how your body language is, what you're wearing. I always tell my students, you're never not communicating. And that's something that is day one of communication courses is you're never not communicating. What you're wearing says something about you. And it helps us as species understand the world around us and put people into context and boxes. And that helps us go at ease and kind of go about our day. And so when people are like, oh, everybody's judging you, I'm like, well, they are. And I'm aware of it. And you you kind of have to, when you come to terms with it and grips with it, you're, you kind of get over it, right? Of the fact of everyone's judging, I'm judging you, you're judging me. And it's just something we do as species to help us make sense of our world. There's nothing negative right. about it. But um, so as the encoder, there's just a lot of things that are going into it. There's learned behaviors that go into our messages. So think about relationships marriages. When there's a fight in the family, maybe you use a certain line that you saw growing up all the time mm -hmm. and flies out of your mouth like crazy. And you're like, where did that come from? Well, that's a learned behavior. And so I could, there's a lot of different parts that go into it. I could kind of go into each nugget individually if you'd like me to, but I think the big thing is a lot of communication is just a lot of self-awareness and reflection and being mindful of your communication. Everyone has the, I would also like to note that everyone has the potential and ability to change the plate they've been given, right? I, a lot of um, doctors right now have been saying, you know, the past 30 years, everybody's been blaming their health outcomes on genetics. But in reality, yes, you're <laughs> kind of this dish of what your genetics foretell you, but you have the power to overwrite them, right? Like you can work out every day or you can take extra supplements. The same is true for, in my opinion, for communication. Okay. Yes, you, you were grown up, you grew up in a house where this was the communication, this was the attachment style, this was what you saw, how people interact with each other. But you have the power to override that. And it's not easy. And it's going to take a lot of work and effort, but it is possible. Absolutely. Um, you know, the only time I would think that that would be something you don't want to do you don't want to override it is if you grew up in what you believed to be the ideal way of doing that. If yeah. you believe that like your parents communicated with one another and with you in, you know, I don't want to presume to speak for everybody, but these are, this is, the, these are the terms I'm going to use and, you know, kind and loving ways for the most part. Hmm. It's not that discipline can't be used in a loving way. It can be. Yeah. But you believe that you grew up great. And you feel like, okay, my parents, you know, they weren't curt to one another. They weren't rude. You know, if there was a problem, they talked about it. And if they had a fight, you know, it was a slight raise of a voice, potentially, mm -hmm. maybe, you know. Then there are others where 
Oh, uh, wow. And that's probably really probably it's, a separate episode altogether. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that it's important to be mindful of different parenting styles, right? And a lot of people yes. think that that's a part of your communication style or your messages, but it really is. So I'll just give you two of the um, different types of parenting styles you can have, which is authoritarian and authoritative. Uh, authoritative, mm. think yay. Authoritative. This is, these are parents who have boundaries. They're, the rules of the house are very much known. They set them out in a loving and kind manner. But if those boundaries are crossed, there are consequences. And the consequences associated with the boundary violation is consistent, right? So if you mm. say, like, hey, if you miss curfew, you're grounded for a week, right? Well, mm. if your son or daughter misses curfew and they come in and they say, hey, we've had this conversation. You've known about the curfew rules since day one. You're grounded for a week versus if you that that's healthy. And what we've seen from the research and the literature is that children who are raised in homes that are authoritative with boundaries and with guidelines and consequences, but mm -hmm. yet are loving and kind and warm and caring homes, they are more successful. They have better attachment styles. They have better marriages. They have better communication styles with their own kids versus authorita uh, um, authoritarian, which is like almost like a, a democratic household where I am the parent. What I say goes. Um, oh, you know, I said a one week grounding for curfew, but you really upset me this time. And I can't believe you were three hours late. Now it's four weeks of grounding. Mm -hmm. That is where we start to see some anxious, potentially avoidant attachment styles between parents and kids. But mind you, when I start saying uh, attachment styles, a lot of people couch that into the psychology literature and they may look at me and say, I have nothing to do with that and I have no room to speak on it. But in reality, there are messages associated that we can couch within both of those. And so mm -hmm. that's why I'm able to kind of be able to give examples on both. But sure. that's an example. Going back to the communication model, what is something else that goes into just our general day-to-day -day communication? Uh, there's relationship context. So let's look mm -hmm. at our relationship, John, right? It's very work-based friends, right? But... Mm -hmm there is a layer and a boundary to our relationship and that influences the way we communicate with each other. Then there's the social context, right? Where are we at in terms of our age differences? Where are we at in terms of our general location? There's social. Then there's the physical and mental capability of communicating effectively. So if I was unfortunately um, part of the hearing impaired community, we may not be able to have this conversation if you didn't have an interpreter. Form. Yeah. And so that influences the message and how the message is communicated and retained. And then, like I said, then there's the cultural differences. Sure, sure. Okay. I'm curious if you're the first in your family to get advanced degrees, what made you decide to do that? Oh, <laughs> I, <laughs> so I, yeah, to go a little bit back on my background. So, I'm from a small town in Sealy, Texas. Okay. And, and Sealy is close. To, for those who aren't familiar with where that is, where in Texas is that? Yeah. So we're about 45, 50 minutes from Houston. To okay. Put it in perspective. But Houston is large, but we're about 45 minutes from Houston. And so I grew up here and I was started school here. Everything was kind of going well. I had a very normal childhood. And then 
When I was nine, my mom was falsely accused and incarcerated for a crime she obviously didn't commit. Mm. And she was sentenced to 12 months, uh, but she served 10 months and was released on good behavior. And a little bit of that backstory is essentially she found uh, a food product. There was, um, my father had purchased uh, a food product from the store and they had found a piece of I guess you could say metal or part of like the factory in it. And they, yeah. And and this is back in the early 2000s when if you go and look at the news, there were, there were a lot of story headlines saying, if you find parts of the factory in your meat, like a, a prong or, you know, an animal byproduct, right? Because it's a factory and things happen. Please report it. Please let us know so that the FDA could then come in and, you know, confiscate whatever that product was and then recall all of the food so that it didn't harm anyone. Again, this is early 2000s. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have any of that stuff. Um, So when we saw it on the news, we believed it, right? Okay. So my father purchased this uh, food product and he found a piece of the factory in it and they reported it and they ultimately confiscated the food product and they were trying to pin it on my mother that she put it in there. And that they were trying to say all of these different things and that she did it to harm my father. But in reality, that wasn't the case. Like my my parents are still married to this day. They've been together 25 years. So it didn't really hold up in court. What they ultimately got her uh, or charged her with was that she signed a document saying that she did put it in there. And the reason she signed that document was because she was interrogated for five plus hours And if you know anything about interrogation literature, which we know a lot more now in 2023, almost 2024, is that interrogations, when they are long and they are stressful, people will sometimes say anything just to get out of the room. And so Mm -hmm. that's actually what my mother did. And um, she served her time and a big part. And she could have taken a plea deal. She could have done the whole home arrest, but she did not want it to be on paper. She never, ever, ever wanted it to be on paper, on record, in the trial folders that she admitted to being guilty. She always wanted to claim her innocence, and she still does to this day. So she, that really influenced, it was a huge chunk of my life. A a family member being incarcerated to a child is almost as traumatic as a death, to some people say. And there's also this phenomenon called secondhand incarceration. So my mother was physically incarcerated, but when you have a loved one who's incarcerated, you can feel the mental imprisonment of being incarcerated. So it was just really stressful and really trying. So my mom gets out of prison and I started playing softball and I played softball for 10, 15 years. And that was my ticket to go to college because my parents had filed bankruptcy during this whole trial period. Wow. so I'm playing softball. The, the whole goal was to get to college. And so I had a scholarship for my master's and bachelor's paid for to a university in Dallas, but the university shut down and went completely online a month before I graduated. Ugh. So if you know anything about sports or being signed, you know that I had at this point turned everyone down, had no other options. Mm. So I ended up uh, going and applying to Concordia University of Texas because they had a softball program. And I, it was D3 and I could walk on. And I loved the campus. It was in Austin, Texas, and it was about three hours from home. And I really enjoyed it. So I went there and I played softball for about a year, year and a half. 
And I quickly realized that this was not the route for me personally. And Mm. so I decided to start pursuing academia. But when I first got into college, I was just like every other college student at 18. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted. And I was torn between communication and psychology because I had been doing speaking events since second grade. So my mom was like, you're a good communicator. You should go to communication. But I loved the psychology route. But I took a careers in psychology class, John. And the teacher or the instructor said, oh, if you want to do anything with this degree, you have to get a master's or PhD. And I said, absolutely not. I am not going to get my master's or PhD. You No, it's just not happening. And so I went the communication route. Well, I fell in love with communication. It's my senior year of my bachelor's program. And everyone was like, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? And I quickly realized when I was on the job hunt and job search that people were not taking individuals with communication degrees very seriously, unfortunately, even though any career you go into requires communication. And I even had a minor in business and I just wasn't getting what I was looking for, but I loved to learn. And so I said, you know what? I knew that I was going to probably need to get a, a, a master's by 2030. And I knew that I was the type of person that if I was going to start a career, I didn't want to have to go back and take a pay cut or do that on the side. Like once I started a family, I wanted to start a family and not have to go back to school because I just knew the challenges that went along with it. Um, Kudos to anyone who does do that. I think I applaud you. I think you're absolutely amazing. I'm just not, I know myself and I know I wouldn't be good at it. So I was in a financing class my senior year and I was applying to grad programs. And I said, Hurricane Harvey had just hit Houston and I had grown up with hurricanes my whole life. And so I was looking at a map and I said, what place <laughs> hurricanes? And I looked at Michigan, the farthest point away from the Gulf. And I said, they don't get hurricanes. My first winter in Michigan, I, there was a polar vortex. So but it hit, hit negative 40. So um, <laughs> not really cool. But my dad from Detroit. So it wasn't like I was completely unfamiliar with Michigan. And so I applied to Michigan State University. I applied. I got in. And when I first started at Michigan State for my master's in 2018, I was studying supportive communication with Dr. Amanda Holmstrom. And uh, that master's degree went by like this. I It was a year and a half, and then you're already starting to apply and work mm. on your thesis and apply for PhD programs. Wow. So I'm learning supportive communication. I'm teaching in the Ellie Broad College of Business. I was teaching Marketing 250, which is basic business communication. Um, that course had 600 students in it at any given time. And I had a a number of recitations that I was in charge of. And then I was, like I said, just doing research. And I wrote my thesis on communication in the classroom, inappropriate communication in the classroom, such as swearing. And how does it affect instructors and how they're viewed? And I just fell in love with research. So then I said, well, I'm going to apply for a PhD program. And When I was applying for my program, it was the fall, December of 2019, and no one knew that the pandemic was coming. And I, you know, I'm applying, I'm working really, really hard. And I went through a major breakup. I was with an individual for six years, and then we went different ways. I think it was the best for both of us. So I'm going through this breakup, January of 2020. Then, you know, I'm trying to finish my program. Then the pandemic hits. And so it was just this whirlwind of stuff. But I ended up doing my first year of my PhD program at, in Texas. Um, mm. 
with my now fiance, uh, Dylan Schuster. And uh, I just worked from home and that was really nice. And then we, Michigan State opened back up. I went back in person. And during this time in between these two years, I'm still teaching in the business college. I taught in the hospitality business college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I'd go back and things are semi back to normal, but I had a huge health implication and I had to choose between my health and my program. And I went to my department and they were super accommodating and they just said, you know, we know that you can do this from home, take care of yourself, but we still want you in our program. And so they let me finish out my program in Texas online. Oh, wow. So I still taught. I taught diversity and communication online and I taught marriage and family online, close relationships. And I also switched my research interests. So I was studying supportive communication, but then I moved into studying gossip. And the reason I started studying gossip was because I noticed that it was something that was very prevalent in our day-to-day communication. And so when I turned to the literature and I found nothing on it or very little, it was very much couched in corporate America life. I was shocked because, as you know, John, it's in the Bible. It's in some of our foundational documents as humans. And so, but not all gossip is bad and, you know, not all gossip is good. And we can go down that rabbit hole here in a minute, but I essentially thought my whole life, you know, from my bachelor's on for the last seven years that I was going to be a professor. Mm. After the pandemic, I just noticed that the academic world had changed because of the pandemic. (laughs) Hiring freezes and the students kind of were very angsty towards professors. And I said, you know what? I have this back. I've always had a background in business. I have a minor in it. I've been teaching in the business college. Let me start doing consulting. And so I've been doing marketing consulting for the last year and a half during my PhD program on the side. And so when I was transitioning out and wrapping up my PhD, it was kind of like it was a no brainer that I would start Allard advising. So let's talk about that for just a minute, because, you know, some of the folks, a lot of the folks who pay attention to this podcast are entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. like you are. So what was that like for you? I mean, I know you were kind of already doing something on the side with the consulting. I mean, you really had Allard Advising, even if you weren't calling it that at the time. Um, So you were already doing it. But was it hard to, it sounded like you were someone who the plan was to be, okay, I'm going to be, I got a PhD in communication. I've been teaching. I mean, that was going to be the life plan. And then it sounds like, it sounds like the students got in the way (laughs) or they're the change in the behavior of the average student seemed to change. And And so that had an impact on your decision. Yes. And and it wasn't just all the students. Like I said, I think it was academic life in general, Uh, you know, academics and departments, some of them made it mandatory that you had to be in an office, you know, and work so many days a week. But what Mm. we saw in our department was that we were more productive with our research. So why would you force people back? And so the culture was just very different. But yes, there were this was not the plan. And I think for most entrepreneurs, it's never really the plan. I have to mention, there's this great book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And Mm -hmm. she there's a story in there and it just really resonates with me. But she was talking about this guy who got laid off and he basically wasn't doing anything. And one day his daughter came up to him and wanted stars painted on her bike. And Mm. 
he just started doing it. And then all the kids in the neighborhood loved all the stars that he was painting on the bikes. And that's his business now. Um, I can't remember the name or the business off the top of my head, but it just goes to show that sometimes in those down times or in those lull times or those transition periods, you really have to hone into kind of what is your calling? What feels natural to you? And what felt natural to me was people asking me for my advice in terms of marketing or generating their revenue or developing their communication skills. And so that's like you said, I didn't call it Allard Advising a year and a half ago, but that's essentially what I was doing. And now I just have a name to it and a platform for it. Sure. But yes, it was very hard because when you're in, a, a lot of times people don't understand your vision, uh, especially with communication. The My fiance is a welder and he owns a metal okay. company. And I helped him get his business and branding up off the ground. So like he's definitely used my services, my intellectual services. And right. he had seen what I have done with other people. But it's a lot slower for the profession I'm in to get clients than he is. And one day I was really like frustrated. And he said something that was just such a memorable message to me. He said, Amanda, he said, people know that they can't weld and people know that they can't build buildings, but everybody thinks that they communi can communicate effectively. <laughs> I said, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh that hard, but <laughs> no, it there is are reasons why I'm laughing. So yeah. And it's like, ah, so I have this uh, a little bit of that extra battle than he has, right? Where I have to convince people that mm -hmm. my services yeah. and that you aren't thinking about your communication the way I can. And and you should see it too. When I tell people that I, I'm Dr. Amanda Allard, they immediately are like, oh, and what? And then I say communication and they have this look on their face like, oh. They think it's fake, they, don't they? What do you say? They think it's fake, don't they? They think it's fake. And then my favorite part is what a lot of people don't know is that I, when you go and get your doctorate in communication from Michigan State University, you also are put in a statistical analysis program. So when I tell people, my doctorate is in interpersonal communication and advanced statistics and research methods, which means I can code, I can analyze data, I can do market research analysis, I can do all of those things because I have my statistical analysis background. So because they think of communication as such as words. So they're like, wait, you also have this STEM background. I mean, it's not a full STEM background because I'm not yeah. uh, I don't have my PhD in, as a statistician, but I have over 18 graduate level courses, which is enough to teach a statistician's class in advanced statistics and research methods. And that really is just like and that's what people don't talk about in terms of communication. Mm -hmm or someone with a PhD, but how do you think I do quantifiable research? How do you think I do qualitative research? And if you don't, for any of the viewers who don't know the difference between quantitative and qualitative, quualitative is numbers-based and qualitative is uh, recall-based uh, survey designs. And so I have to be able to analyze that data. And so I have to have a statistician's background or a statistics background. Interesting, interesting. So yeah, so I have this extra as an entrepreneur and it was very hard to get over it for sure oh yeah yeah and, and you know oh go ahead i i would think it depends on the type of business that you have so for instance you know there are certain businesses where it's the and, and i'm getting into a little bit of difference in nuance and terms here but customer base versus client base 
typically people who sell products deal with a lot of customers, meaning it's a lot of one-off, a lot of that. Versus if you have a service, that tends to be more client-based, that's a lot of repeat business, mm -hmm. typically, not always, but typically. And so in my world, in the, the various businesses that I have, while I will take customers, I prefer not to do that. Mm -hmm. For me, it's the relational side of things. Yeah, That's one of the main reasons why is because mm -hmm. I like to have a relationship with people that I do business with and that and specifically also for people who do business with me, because I think it's that important. It is. I and, truly do. And even if you're selling, let's say, insurance, right? Yes, it's very customer based. Everybody needs insurance. People Again, people know that they can't file their own insurance or get their they have to go through someone. And, mm -hmm. But even when you're selling insurance, even when you're selling medical supplies to a doctor, what are you trying? You, you have to establish a relationship. And what people resonate with are relationships and stories. And those are mm -hmm. some of the greatest salesman tactics. And so I think coming on and doing podcasts for me is a great way for me to tell my story of, OK, why do I find communication so important? Um, I think that's why you probably also, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you also got into podcasting is learning from people, but also being able to tell your story and connecting mm -hmm. with people um, because it's more enriching. Uh, nobody likes just the one-off sales, like you were saying. And I think that's where a lot of hospitality business research is leaning into learning more about AI versus in-person salesmen, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing in the research and the literature is people love robots when it comes to convenience. So for example, when you're checking into a hotel, it's really nice to just work with a robot who can, you can type in your information, they spit out the key, you go and you walk on. Mm -hmm. But when you're buying a car, it's a huge investment and they want that relationship with a person versus a robot. Yeah. When you're reading a book, would you rather read a book that was written by Dale Carnegie or the robot version of Dale Carnegie? <laughs> I'd want the Dale Carnegie book, right? And so it's important when you are starting your any entrepreneurial endeavor to formulate relationships, to understand that it's going to be really difficult and really hard to get up and off the ground running, but also mm. to be willing to share your story because that's what people are going to resonate with. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason most people today don't know history. Let's yeah. be honest, they don't. And for the totality of humankind, folks who actually read, that's a relatively new phenomenon mm. for, I mean, centuries upon centuries. It was orally. It just passed down story after story after story. And that's how history was passed was by one person telling another person or telling a group of people something that was going on. So the, the fact that, that we have books now and that we can read these things is relatively new. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're talking about, this whole storytelling element is something that has kind of been lost as, oh, as yeah. an art form for everyday life. Mm -hmm. And when uh, another business that I started uh, in the midst of Allard Advising for any of the viewers listening is Wedded Words Wedding Speech Consulting. And mm -hmm. I noticed when, what is Wedded Words Wedding Speech Consulting? I basically help with the vow editing and the speech writing, but not just the writing. It's the being able to get up in front of people and publicly speak. And mm -hmm. 
when I was first marketing wedded words, I would always lean on that, right? But what I noticed really resonated with people was the story of why I started wedded words. So when I was teaching at Michigan State, one of the speeches I always taught was a best man and bridesmaid speech. And Mm. I saw a lot of great ones and I saw a lot of bad ones. I've taught over 2000 students, so I've seen the best and the worst. But I also, for the last three years, was helping my friends and family write their speeches before weddings. And I mean, 10 minutes before they go on, I'm editing it and adding in cute little things to really resonate. And then it was my fiance who was like, you should be charging for these services because it's a lot of work you're going in and doing this. And so the sort and when I started planning my own wedding, I was looking for someone to help make sure Dylan and I had vows that were synonymous to each other. I didn't want to wait hmm. till next week before the wedding to make sure that our vows were <laughs> at least three, uh, two to three minutes in length, right? Like I didn't want his to be 30 seconds and mine be five minutes and vice versa. Right. And I didn't find anyone. And there are so many different vendors in the wedding industry. It's a huge business. Yeah, it is. And I was shocked that this was not a thing in America. It's starting in Australia, but not here. And I've had a lot of pushback. I've had some people say, okay, well, you know, it's not authentic. And we kind of like those cringy, awkward speeches. And that's fine. But I'm sure the first florist who said, I think you should spend $8,000 on these florals. was probably left, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm not, and my, my services are not $8,000. But I mean, you have to start somewhere, right? And mm-hmm. in 30, 50 years, it may not, it may be a no brainer, like, oh yeah, duh, we're going to have someone working with us for the speech. Just like right now, it's like a no brainer that, oh yeah, we're going to have florals or a DJ or alcohol. So you have to start somewhere. Um, just like the, you know, Amazon, Amazon started out of a garage. You, you have to start somewhere. Right. You know, uh, and this isn't something I talk about a lot on this show. One of the things that I do, I actually perform wedding ceremonies and I have since 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, but folks, by the way, I am the real ordained, not the fake internet ordained. <laughs> and yes, that is fake. Clarify. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what the government says. It's fake. Mm. Having said that, a uh, quick little story related mm. to that about the importance of having someone who knows what they're doing versus asking a friend to do something. This was many years ago. I was all set to do a wedding for a couple. They initially had tr- had asked a friend of theirs to do it. This was right when the whole internet ordination thing had come about. And the friends, for whatever reason, the friend said he couldn't. I was like, okay. And then they asked me, they hired me. I was like, fine. You know, we did our paces, had everything ready to go. And just for those of you who want to know, I go from a script, just so everybody knows. I do that mostly for the couple. So they know exactly what I'm going to say. And there are zero surprises. And I mean, none. They know word for word what I'm going to say. So we get to two weeks before the wedding. This guy changes his mind and says, I got ordained. I'm good to go. And they come back to me and they felt really bad. But they said, hey, he really wants to do it. And we really wanted him from the beginning. I said, it's okay. I understand. I said, you need to understand the deposit is non-refundable. So that's mine. And I said, you did that to book the date with me, which means I couldn't book other dates because of that. And they said, we understand. That's fine. But they invited me to come to the wedding anyway. So I come. 
So first of all, you know, like other like parents and stuff and other family members, they notice I'm not up on the stage when it starts and they're looking at me weird. And I'm like, this is what they wanted. I'm like, okay. And it starts. And this guy, I'm not sure what he was trying to do. I think, I think he was trying to do it like it was a best man speech. Mm. So he, mostly he was trying to be funny. This is not the time to be funny. Yeah. Not during the ceremony. Yeah. And that's what he was trying to do. And it, none of the jokes landed. I mean, it was bad. I mean, and the parents were turning around and they were mad. They were mad at me. I'm like, I didn't decide this. Yeah. And so it was a train wreck. Yeah. Funny thing was a month later after, you know, everything kind of died down, they came back from their honeymoon and stuff and they had a chance and they looked at their wedding video. I mean, and they were mortified because they didn't, they didn't remember any of it. And I told them ahead of time, it's like, you know what? This day is going to be a blur. You're not going to remember anything. And said, and it's okay that you don't, but you're not because so much is going to be happening. And they looked at it and they were so mortified. They actually asked me, would you be willing to redo it just for a video? So we'd have something that was, yeah, they asked me to redo it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was just going to be the three of us because they couldn't get, because everybody else was coming from all over the country for the other stuff. So, and I I was willing to do it. It, it, We didn't end up doing it for whatever reason, but. uh, Like you said, people don't know that they need your services until it's too late. And I can't tell you how many people I see giving relationship advice or communication advice. And I'm like mortified, very similar Mm. to you. And I believe that goes back to that famous saying of uh, knowledge is power. Mm. But a big believer of there's this extra part. It's only powerful if you use it. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, I have knowledge in science. I took science K through 12, right? But I don't use it every day. So if I, you know, it's not a powerful tool. But when it comes, and that's why I ultimately wanted to study communication was because when I was in my undergrad degree, I didn't know what I wanted. But when they, Dr. Feaster, Abigail Feaster, who's a mentor to me still to this day, she sold me on it. She said, communication and relationships can improve your life expectancy. It can enhance your relationships, your friendships. It can improve your success at your career. And I was like, okay, well, if I don't have any hard skills in STEM, at least I have all of these soft skills that are going to improve my life. Like, why wouldn't I want Mm -hmm. to dive deeper into it? And I think that was another thing with me leaving academia was a lot of these students, when they're 18 to 22, sometimes don't realize the importance of communication. So I can't tell you how many students came. Another part of why I wanted to start Allard Advising was because a lot of students would come to me after they graduated or their senior year and they would say, I didn't take your class seriously. Can I get some one-on-one <laughs> lessons? And so I was doing one-on-one client coaching with them for free because I was part of the university. Uh, yeah. I, realized, I told them, I was like, this is a service that you would pay thousands for. Like at the amount of times I met with them throughout mm-hmm. the year. And so it's just one of those things is I wanted to leave academia so that I could reach more people as well. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my information to be gatekept by an institution. Right, right. I get that. Which I have no problem being a part of an institution. I could see myself going and teaching at a university 
as an adjunct or just as an instructor, but I definitely wanted, I want to reach more people because I think that we are in a communication crisis. I think we're in a loneliness crisis right now mm. and it's affecting our work. It's affecting our marriages. It's affecting our relationships with our kids. And I think we just need to be mindful of it. For sure. Thanks for tuning in to part one of my conversation with Dr. Amanda Allard. If you really enjoyed this particular episode, please be sure to share it with other folks because I know they'd get a lot out of it just like you did. So thanks for tuning in today and we'll see you guys next time. Bye everybody.